I'm Mel Stewart, and this is the Swim Swam podcast. Joining me is Coleman Hodges, Swim Swam's head of production and the man on deck. And today, we are extremely honored to have one of the greatest swimmers in the sport, in our sports history, 11-time Olympic medalist, Mapiandi. I like I like your setup. I what, what what are those awards that I'm seeing over your shoulder? Those are the NCAA trophies. I should have recognized those, but after going to the University of Tennessee, I just I just I blocked it from my memory. You know what I find interesting is that the first NCAA trophy I won and the last one that I won my senior year were both water polo championship titles. So with one team. So yeah, we have, it's that, that's one of the two fascinating sports. two sports. Yeah, one two of the most sports, yeah. One of the most fascinating things about Mapiandi is, and it's it's just something that I learned at being on the national team because I was on the national team for ten years. For many of those years, you were our captain, you were our leader. So I, my my entire history is through the lens of Mapiandi. But the uh, was was learning about you and learning your story, and and it was a few things. It's that you didn't swim year round until you were in high school, correct? That's right. Um, my parents really encouraged me to have a diverse background. Um, my mom had me taking piano lessons with Mrs. Hill. I remember wanting to quit. One of the things my parents did for me is once you start something, you have to finish. And then once it's over, if you want to choose to do something else other than play on your phone or watch TV, then that was perfectly fine with them. So I moved on to the drums. Um, I was in a choir. Um, is it a musical? Had one of the only non-singing parts, but I was a male body up there. And then at uh, 15 is when um, basketball wasn't very fun anymore. I was getting teased because I was so skinny and really hadn't gone through puberty. So showering after practice was always humiliating and certainly my peers let me know it. Um, and that's when I started year round in the water, both water polo and swimming. So fairly so you got your scholarships at Cal with, with swimming and water polo. And, I, and, I, and so it's, it, what's interesting to me, it was like, I was always surprised by your freshman year at Berkeley. Is it, is it true that you were, you're six, seven, but is it true that you were, that you did most of your growth? Like you were six, one or two and you grew most of, got, got to six, seven that year. I probably graduated from high school about six, four, maybe six, five. So I didn't grow so much taller as I filled out. I mean, my driver's license at 16, I was 6'1", and weighed 132 pounds. So I remember my basketball coach would yell at me, God damn it, Biondi, when you stand sideways, I can't see you. My uniform, you know how you hang a uniform on the little wire hangers and it sticks out the side? Well, it's kind of what it looked like on me out on the court. When we think about Matt Biondi, we think about Cal, and we think about your eight individual titles, uh, NC2A titles. But that freshman year, you were, let's see, your seventh in the 100 and 200 free and ninth in the 50 free. What was going on? Were you like going to, were you going, were you thinking 200 to 500? <laughs> Not the 500, but um, definitely the 50, 100, and 200. That was the last year that there were only six in the finals and 12 total. So I really, um, I wasn't strong enough to make the big six, but I performed well at night to consoles. 
and then finish in ninth in the in the 50s. So I remember um, telling my coach Tom Morin that in one year's time when I come back to the NCAA, I'm going to be in the big final and I'm going to be going for the for the first place. And uh, that was really my breakout year, my sophomore year. But it came out that confidence my freshman year of being you know a player, being able to perform, but knowing I had I had more coming. Well, I wanted everyone to, to understand that you were, you were mortal and you, were, you weren't a, a, a god on earth, at, not at that point in time. But it's in, in what happens between you know, that year and the next year is, is pretty extraordinary. And, and the reason why it's so meaningful right now is, is because you're, you know, you're, you're heading up the alliance. You're the manager of the alliance. And it's, uh, the alliance is a, an association that works to, to support athletes and help them uh, gain some, some economic understanding at the table among most of the power players in the marketplace. Uh, it's not a union, but in, in many ways it, it's, it, it kind of has similar purposes. I'll let you explain that as we get there, but I want everyone to know who you are and know the guy that I came to know and respect so very much. So we're going to get into the Alliance a little bit later, but this is, this is about, this is Mapiandi history. What happened between your freshman year and the 1984 Olympic trials, because it seemed like you took off like a rocket. I think um, the fact that I was still relatively new to the sport mentally, um, we mentioned that I did a number of different things in my um, young adult life. Um, so that when I finally got to Cal and was swimming and putting in the six hours a day, it was so thrilling to me to be with such great Olympic champions. And then the fact that my, I was late to mature, you know, bittersweet. I was teased a lot in high school. I know a lot of people can relate to not feeling like they're a part of a group or accepted. And when I got to, to Berkeley, it was so much judged on what you did, what you said, and not the popularity of high school and more how you looked. And so it was that combination of my mental stimulation and and positive outlook, and then physically my body just became a man. My shoulders got bigger, I got muscles, you know, pecs and biceps, and um, certainly in the weight room. So you put that together with the strong kick that I always developed, because I was so skinny and scrawny, and um, then it just just blew the doors off the barn, so to speak. And in 19, okay, so you made the Olympic team in 1984, went to the storied LA, Los Angeles Olympic Games. Uh, if I understand it correctly, you touched third on the four by one freestyle relay. So you touched so that Rowdy could anchor, split 49-6-7. Uh, you done your homework. Yeah, and you really just, I mean, but that was it. And so that's cool. That's awesome. I watched it. I was a kid. And in 1985, I went to national championships with my dad, Big Melvin. I was little Melvin and Big Melvin. My dad said, Melvin Jr., you need to get up here and watch this. Not that I needed a prompt, but I watched you swim the 100 free, and I never thought a human being could do that. It was the most beautiful 100-meter freestyle I'd ever seen. Um, but everyone stood for that race. And I think that was in Mission. Was it Mission 1985? Yeah, Mission Viejo. Yeah, that was an extraordinary it was moment. Nice, I, I remember. Yeah, it was, it was ABC – Sports was there. The trucks were parked outside. Yeah, it was. It that was, was my first first world record. Wow. Well, yeah, it was. It was. It was. It was beautiful. Under forty nine. Yeah. I wanted to go back. You mentioned the Olympic trials. That's an interesting story. I think for people to hear. 
But in 84, I was actually planning to go camping with my friend, Mike Green. And Nord said to me, Matt, you should go to the Olympic trials. And I really asked him why. And he just said very simply for experience for 88. So I said, okay, I'll go camping afterwards. And then I remember being on the deck, especially the day of the race, and looking at just the tension that people felt in their face. Their skin was clammy, and you could see the, just their body motions. They were so nervous. And I just was there to, for experience. And that really was a big reason why I was able to make the team. Had I gone in really wanting to be on the team, I don't know that I would have. And I can confirm that because um, Robin Leamy, was on lane six and I was in lane seven. And he was the fastest man on the planet at that time. And he went out in the 50 and I was kind of right on his hip. And we turned and of course, because he was inside, I couldn't see what was happening in the rest of the field. And as we came off the wall, I started my big kick and I started catching him. And about halfway back, I passed him and I caught a glimpse of the rest of the field. And I could see clear across to lane one. And I panicked. I literally, at that point, knew that I was not prepared to win that race mentally. And my whole physical body changed. Muscles, the lungs started burning, the legs aching. And I managed to finish fourth. But it was an interesting lesson to me that there's more to it than just the physical. That you have to believe, you have to see yourself succeeding in the way you want to in order for it to happen. That's where it starts. I'm so glad you interrupted me. That's one of the greatest Cinderella stories in swimming that I've ever. Do I go camping or do I go to trials? Oh, I made the Olympic team. That's well. I, I also had a summer job. I was assistant coach at a rec team, and the president sent me a very crafty telegram. If you can believe this, telegram that said I had promptly been fired because I missed a week's worth of practice, and then at the bottom, it had good luck in the Olympics. <laughs> uh. Okay, so I, I, that, that made me think of, of one thing. You know, you said you were kind of a latecomer to swimming. You know, a lot of people um, go to Olympic trials, and they're, especially for newcomers, they're racing their icons, right? They're racing these people you'd look, they had looked up to their whole lives. And, and like you said, it's kind of like, I'm not ready for this. Did, uh, obviously, you had that feeling, you know, like you said, at the end of the race, but did you have people you looked up to in swimming at that point or people you had kind of idolized that you you ha hadn't raced before or you were looking forward to racing heading into that meet you know it's an interesting point my role models were in particular um, peter rocca who was a 76 olympian and an 80 boycott olympian a silver medalist in the backstroke he gave me an award when i was 10 years old and I remember um, seeing him on television and wanting to be like him. But to show you really just how new I was at the Olympic trials that year in 84, I knew the names, but really didn't know the history of the Mike Heaths and the Rowdy Gaines and the Chris Cavanaugh's. Um, and Jager was, was a year older, so I knew of him. But as far as, you know, really knowing what great competitors they were, I still was just looking from the outside in. Well, I like, I, like, I like the beginnings. I like the Cinderella story. I'm glad you brought us back. But I, I want to I move us forward so we can, we can get to the topic of the alliance. But I, I, what's really important is that the, you know, in 1988, you were 
this, you were the biggest star on the planet. And I, and I, you know, I knew that in swim, but I didn't quite understand it. But I remember getting off the plane and you were just a few feet ahead of me. And I remember you stepping off that plane flashes commotion. It looked like you kind of tripped and then you were running because you were being chased by media. Do you remember that USC swimming was not prepared for what happened in Seoul, Korea? That, that, I mean, paint a picture. What was that like? Well, I appreciate you bringing that up. Um, And in truth, the sport has really come a long way, but I think, you know, as you interviewed with Tom, we were really sort of the anvils. We were the breaking point that really moved swimming out of this archaic era to a modern era where um, you look at swimmers in their whole life and not just how fast they can swim in the pool. So when I got off the plane in Seoul, there were at least 75 photographers and reporters that were there. As I stepped out through customs, I was literally physically assaulted. Um, I had my bags on a cart. The, the bags were knocked over. And I was scared. It was really for my own safety. And I had just abandoned all my luggage and ran into the bus. And Tammy Bruce was the one who stepped up and started pointing the fingers at the reporters. And she was my protection. She kept me safe. Now, to further the story, and I think this is just a travesty, but after the seven medals in Seoul, I was no longer safe outside the village, including in the village. I couldn't go anywhere because all the athletes wanted pictures and autographs. And you do five, there's 20, you do 20, there's 200. And so I went to the USOC representative and I said, you, you got to help me. I'm, I'm just I'm in the water with piranhas. So they put me in a hotel. And when I got home, they sent me the bill. Because oh, you're kidding me. No athlete deserves hotel only administrators. And I was furious. And remember Parks Britain, who was also a maverick in, in uh, signing swimmers and, and being an Olympic agent. Um, he just said, Matt, we got bigger fish to fry. Pay it. And I paid it. That's amazing. It's a, so it, it bringing us back to that, that moment in history, most celebrated athlete of the, of the 1988 Olympic games, um, seven Olympic medals. And, uh, it was, and it was a stunning performance, but it, the year before that, we, I remember being on deck down in, uh, Brisbane, <clears throat> we were, and it was the Pan Pacific games. It wasn't championships, it was games. And I remember Tom Jager, I remember you, and there, there was an altercation on deck with the then CEO, executive director of USA Swimming, Ray Essek. And it was, and I remember like, it felt like it just, it was just weird. I didn't know, I didn't know what was going on. And Tom grabbed me and goes, you're coming to a meeting tonight. You're a kid. Keep your mouth shut. Listen. But I remember going into that hotel room and was with luminaries, with you, Pablo, Mary T, Kostoff. And, and, and listening to Ray say what? What did he tell us in that, in that hotel room? Do you remember that conversation? Well, I think one of, the, one of the big issues was that the Pan American Games were live primetime on ABC in the United States. And we were at the Pan Pacific Games in Australia with no coverage at all, not even in the newspaper. And so for us who have you know, contracts with 
I was with Arena, others were with Speedo or with Tier. I mean, this was our livelihood. And where was USA Swimming in trying to promote us? And I remember my when I got back, you know, a couple world records, right? And they'd say, oh, you really had a bad year. I watched 100 free, you didn't even make the finals. I said, well, we would have beaten all those guys. So, you know, as far as our relationship back then, it's really unfortunate. Um, and it's one thing I hope to be able to correct now is that we were young, we were fussy. I mean, we, we could see that we were not being well represented. And yet, you know, USA Swimming just kind of shut the door on us and really didn't, like an adult, step forward and open negotiation. And for one of the big things that comes up is transparency. Swimmers don't feel as though organizations are transparent, in particular with the revenue and where the revenue is going. It's sort of this big mystery. And I think many of the organizations like it that way because they have more control. They have more freedoms. And one of the things that the Alliance is hoping to do is to bring athletes to the table to be able to see, like the other modern sports, looking at the revenue contract that's coming in and how it can be evenly distributed. I want to get into that topic. I want to get into exactly what the, the nitty gritty and uh, t- t- I'm a, I want to get there, but I, I do have to say one thing. I have to say that 1992 was, was not the same performance as 1988. And what people don't know is that uh, between 88 and 92, you and Tom were the tip of the spear and you were, it's like you were fighting a war on two fronts. You were fighting to be the, the best in the world at what you do. And you were also fighting this political battle with the USOC and with USA Swimming. And it's my opinion, it's always been my opinion that you would have, you might not have won seven, but you, you would have been in five events and your performance would have been far better and you probably would have gone on to 96 or further if you'd had some support. And I just remember when your career was over, it, it just felt like it was the saddest thing in the world. Is it, uh, did, did you leave... Did you leave the sport with, uh, with there a lot of hard feelings when you, when you retired? Fortunately, I did, and I think that's pretty well said. Um, again, you know, Tom and I being so different in that we were racing in Europe for prize money and appearance fees. We had our own swimsuit contracts. I mean, we were making a living as professional swimmers, speeches, clinics, whatever we needed to do. Network television shows. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was kind of, it was fun and exciting that way. Um, honestly, Nort didn't know what to do with me as a postgrad. He was very worried about NCAA sanctions. You know, Nort, um, conservative old guard coach. Um, and there was no national team at that time through USA Swimming. I, as we mentioned earlier, didn't swim with AAU Swimming and USA Swimming coming up. So I didn't have a club to go home to. And I remember calling Eddie Reese, who had been named head men's coach in 92, that I didn't have a team. I needed some place to go and train. And he called me back the next day and said, no, you can't come. Because his loyalty was to Sean Jordan and his Texas swimmers. So you have the Olympic coach whose primary focus is his college swimmers. And so I had nobody to go, no team to go to. And I hired my own coach, Tom Morin. And I trained by myself for three years. And you can't compete at a high level, at least 
not given my history, how much I would go to practice feeling down and then somebody would be pushing me and pretty soon I'd have a great set. Um, the camaraderie, the socialization, that's really an important part of training. And so that's what made those last years so bitter is I just got cast out. And when I tell people, you know, one of the America's greatest Olympic swimmers of all time just had the door shut on him and, you know, pushed out, it's, it's really quite amazing. We know now that swimmers have much more longevity. I mean, I was 24 when I retired. That's, I was a pup. The, uh, what, what just, when I think of, of, of you, I imagine you, uh, the, the image that's burned in my brain is the one where you're getting off the plane in 88 and you were accosted. The other is going to a training camp and it was back when you, it's like you had, you had the Ray-Ban endorsement. You were driving a sweet car and you drove to camp and you had your Ray-Bans on, jeans, great t-shirt, and you got out and it's like, yeah, I drove here. And uh, you just look like the coolest guy in the world. I wanted to be Matt Biondi. It just wasn't going to happen. Do you, I forget what training camp that was, but it was, do you remember driving to training camp in Colorado Springs? That sounds like a long drive. Maybe I rented the car. Maybe, Maybe it was. Rented the car. Well, here's, well let's, let's, let's bring it back to what's going on right now. Your history is there. It's, uh, yeah, you have the reason, the passion, the grit to, to make the Alliance uh, this valuable association and tool for athletes now and into the future. Is it, uh, if, if you're talking to, you're talking to an athlete who's on the bubble, they're going to be a potential medalist, but they could certainly score a whole lot of points. Uh, Tom Shields is on the bubble. Tom Shields is somebody who, but he knows how to, how to score points over and over and over. We saw him do it at NC2As. He's a great pro swimmer. What is your message to him when you talk to him about the Alliance? Well, Tom actually doesn't need much education. He's, he's been forefront on um, political avenues. Um, he's well informed about the issue and the need for swimmers. So my, my conversations with him is just more on, on par and what we can do uh, moving forward, you know, his experience and my um, starting out in this first year. Um, but most of my conversations are with swimmers who really don't have much concept of their sports value. And for many of them, commercial value. The commercial value is a little more intuitive in that you can sell the logo on your swimsuit, on your cap, um, you can do give speeches, you can do clinics. But sports value is what um, the networks are covering, what NBC is paying for world championships and for the Olympics. And that's the part that, that um, I spend most of my time, most of my messaging is about trying to get them to look at the whole picture and what they actually contrib contribute to say the Olympic games. And it's something that we, that we learn when we're, when you, when you dive into FINA is they're, uh, they're cash rich. They seems like they, they, they're sitting on a pretty big war chest. Do you, do you have any metrics, any numbers that you, that you can, that you share with athletes? You're like, look, this is, uh, this is what they have in terms of their financial latitude. This is where it's coming from. And this is what, what you're doing. And you're maybe, maybe not getting paid what you, what you think you should be getting paid. Well, I haven't done a deep dive into the FINA finances. Um, but again, it comes back to the issue of transparency. And the, the, the information is heavily guarded. 
um, exactly you know how it's being spent. Um, but it's really quite simple when you look at other professional sports and how their revenue sharing is roughly 50% with the athletes. And what are swimmers getting for their participation in the Olympics? Zero. So you really don't need to know what their finances are to know that this is not how modern sports work. It's, a, it's part of an archaic system and these generally much older men who keep extending their retirement have an iron grip on these finances and on the swimmer's eligibility. How many times have they threatened a swimmer from the Olympic Games because they don't like what they're doing to expand their own economic opportunities? So really the alliance, to the partnership to be able to pull as many interested and educated athletes together as we can to be able to address FINA, to be able to address the IOC with, with some of these issues. I don't think anybody would say that swimmers don't deserve some share of the, of the prize money for participating in the Olympics. Um, so that's a big thing for the Alliance is really to, to um, ask for prize money for both finalists and semifinalists so that the swimmers have some economic goals to shoot for. One of the other interesting things about the Alliance is even those swimmers who don't make an Olympic final or semifinal have the opportunity to share in some of that revenue that would go to the larger organization as well as um, a percentage to the individuals who are actually in the pool participating. Job security. Something. It's, I mean, and look at what this COVID epidemic has, has done for, for the security of swimmers. I mean, many of them don't know if their sponsors are going to be paid. When you look at um, corporations, there's great um, interest in hoarding cash and not being aggressive in, in signing swimmers. I mean, are their contracts still good? How are they going to support themselves for another year? Um, so it shows the, how fragile the economics for swimmers really are. There is no guaranteed money. Now, maybe they squeak by with a few thousand dollars from the Federation to pay rent, to buy a used car, but they're not saving any money. They're not building on their future. Many of them don't have health care or retirement plans. So these things need to change. It's time for swimming to come up to the level of other professional sports. Being a being a, a U.S. star, you you culturally you're aligned with the United States, but you're you're, you're the alliance is global, and uh, I'm just curious: are athletes in Australia, athletes in Europe, are they are they more are they are they more do they understand the alliance faster than our U.S. athletes? And uh, I, I suspect that they might, and I'm, I, just, I was wondering what that experience was like. Yeah, it's an interesting question. Um, I would have to say that the European swimmers tend to think more holistically. They see more than just the pool, the coach, the weight room, and the mess hall. They, they are aware of television being there. They're aware of market share. They're aware of of the brand names and, and, um, and some of the dollar values that the top swimmers are earning. 
Um, American swimmers seem to have more of a shield around them from the culture of swimming. Sort of the coach protects the swimmer. The swimmer's job is simply to wake up early, go to the pool, go to the trainer, eat, sleep, and repeat. And it's, it's not really not developing um, quality individuals for society, for community members, for spouses, for parents. I mean, there's, there's some bigger themes there, bigger social themes that, um, you know, sports should be about developing whole people first and foremost. And we can celebrate those champions who happen to excel at that discipline. But really the big picture is we want good people out there, thinking people, knowledgeable people, people who have critical thinking skills. And I would say the Europeans have a leg up. On the other hand, Australia is nice because they speak English. And I have a problem with the language. And I, I, that's, that's been an interesting dynamic. And being a product of our American public school system, I just speak English. Seven years of Spanish down the drain. Well, I, I appreciate it. That was, I was wondering what, what your experience was with that. It, it should, should be, I don't think you're calling out any, any U.S. athletes. And uh, what's interesting is that for as much as you ended your career and it was, a, it was, it was not the best ending, it's not the, you should have stayed and you knew you should, st- you should have been in this sport. You have continued to stay engaged. Every, you know, I, I see every four years. You show up. You are an ambassador of the sport. And when you like things, even through USA Swimming, you're like, you know, I like that. I like Olympic trials. I like, you know, you, you're, you, you've, always, you've always had authenticity and you've always spoke your truth. And I, th- I think it's a big reason why t- today our, our U.S. athletes are getting more support at the NGB level. But I think that they also are looking at that support and thinking that's all there is. They, they, I don't think that they realize that beyond their, their stipend and their health care that, that there's a bigger market. Are you, run, are you running into that experience? You know, for a swimmer to think that we can negotiate $100 million from the IOC, it's, it's a difficult one for them to swallow. Um, the other one that is interesting is that if the Olympics doesn't change, if they don't adapt, they're eventually going to become obsolete. And to a young swimmer, the thought of the Olympics not being the almighty, that there might be other pro-Olympic games out there, um, that, you know, the ISL or other... Um, economic opportunities, that's, that's a real mind blower. But it's, um, it's not inconceivable in the future. I mean, look at the dream team for basketball. They came out and, you know, they had all the big stars. They won the It was like, I'm going to spend time with my family, right? They had contracts. They, their, their bread was buttered somewhere else. It's so, interesting, yeah. That's one of the things swimmers say is why would the IOC pay athletes when they don't have to? They're getting their workers to work for free. Why would they, why would they offer money? In the long run, they'll need to. Otherwise, swimmers will be one and done. That's right. It's, uh, we're down to six minutes. And uh, I just wanted to – I know we're in the infancy of the alliance, but it's like where would you like to see the alliance? year three, year five, year 10, if it can, uh, if, if you can get the momentum you need. Well, this, um, the Tokyo Olympics being pushed back has had some interesting implications. One, 
in a positive way for the Alliance, swimmers realize how fragile their economics really are, that there are no guarantees and there should be some guarantees. Um, I've got a lot of swimmers on the fence. And we mentioned US uh, sort of lagging behind. It's so, many of them lag behind in just the confidence of putting themselves out there for fear of the political backlash, that it would be controversial, that it would become negative. So there's a lot of swimmers that I've spoken to who will sign after the Olympics. So I've got 59 members that are committed, 21 different countries. And after Tokyo, I think we're gonna go well over 100. And if my assumptions are correct, I think we'll have enough critical mass at that point that it could be something permanent and really make meaningful change. Something that swimmers would be proud. You know, we've got 40 some founding members. Um, they'll look back and they were one of the first to put their money where their mouth is. Um, if after Tokyo, you know, people had just runs flat, then I think, you know, that's, that's certainly a possibility too. Although, look, every sport has their athlete representation. And why swimming doesn't? It's going to happen sometime, just a matter of when. We're down to four minutes. And it's, it's a, um, I, just, I just want to point out that it's very interesting that even in 2020, going into 21, athletes are afraid to sign on. And, they're, and, 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 a, and a segment are not going to do it until after the Olympics are over. They're, the fear still exists, which is mind-boggling. It's, it's, it, is it a, do you hear a specific way what those fears are? What, what, did, what, what would they, what, what's the fear? The, I think the Japanese have a saying, the tall peg gets the hammer. So there's safety in numbers. So to be able to get enough swimmers signed on so that those pull in, that's, that's the push me, pull me, right? Um, there's a category of swimmers, and believe me, I get this. I, I understand where they're coming from. And that's why I say they'll sign after the Olympics, is because they do have sponsors. They are an American hero, um, competing with the integrity of an amateur and going for country and going for gold, and, and that's marketable. And so they don't want to risk that. They don't want the alliance to have somebody within the Alliance, you know, pop off about how, and, and have the media then start feasting on the negative part of swimming. And so, you know, for those that have really earned that elite level status and have contracts, maybe through the USOC or with their apparel companies, they don't want to risk it. And I remember what it was like for me in 88 with the Ray-Bans and some of the deals in Japan. I mean, when you're making nothing and all of a sudden you're, you're making, you know, $10,000 checks, $25,000 checks. It's like, wow, Hey, don't mess with this. This is good. Keep them coming. Right. So I get it. I get it. We're down to about a minute and a half. And I just, I, I, we talked early on just personally, uh, you know, outside of media and uh, I was concerned for you. I was like, I felt like this was going to be hard. Is, is, is this mission as hard as, as, as you thought it would be? Yes, yes. Um, and it just getting the time from the swimmers, I think is the hardest part. Um, you know, they're so, they're so busy and, you know, I'm like a cold salesman, right? Trying to put, you know, satellite on their rooftop or solar paneling or something, reciting, just like a salesman. 
So that part, you know, I, you just can't fear rejection. And if I make a hundred calls and I'm able to talk to five swimmers, that's five more than I would have talked to. We are down to a minute. So tell me this, if there, any, any parting thoughts, is there any message that you would like a, a young swimmer who has potential to be a pro star and a meaningful member of the pro community? What's uh, what, what message do you have for them? Make sure that swimming is something that you're excited about. And through this pandemic, when I talk to swimmers, I love to hear them say, wow, I really miss the pool. I miss my coach, I miss my teammates. And so if you really wanna make an impact at that high level, there has to be that tingling inside of you, that energy, that spark about your participation. It's not gonna be there all the time, but most of the time, it's gotta be something that you really are grateful for. And that's what makes for champions. You've been listening to the Swim Swam Podcast. Stay tuned for new episodes every week. You can take Swim Swim Podcasts on the go by subscribing on your favorite podcast platform. Look for links in the description below and be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel for more videos as well.